From University of Utah Health and Scope Radio, this is Pioneering the Future, stories of discovery and innovation. I'm Kyle Wheeler. The theme of this episode is basic discovery to bedside. My guest is Wesley Sundquist, PhD. Dr. Sundquist is the Samuels Professor and Co-Chair of the Department of Biochemistry at the University of Utah. He is also a member of the Cell Response and Regulation Program at Huntsman Cancer Institute. And now, my discussion with Dr. Wesley Sundquist. I'd like to welcome Dr. Wes Sundquist. Uh, He's joining me today for Pioneering the Future. Welcome, Dr. Sundquist. Thanks, Kyle. Happy to be here. Uh, So, of course, we're going to be talking about some discoveries that have happened in research here at the University of Utah. And today's subject, uh, we're wanting to talk about discoveries going going from discovery to therapeutics um, however, before I like to dive into the subject, I'd like to just sort of set up a little get-to-know-you type of a question. And so I'm always curious, when you were younger, maybe in your, your teens or your 20s, what did you envision for yourself professionally, and, and how did you find yourself in, in the position you are now pr- professionally? Yeah, that's kind of a funny question. I've been actually thinking about it a bit because uh, I'm running an externship program for students at Carleton College right now, for two-week externship on careers in biomedical research. And part of that, I've been thinking through my own career. Um, I was always interested in science. Uh, I think the thing that happened to me, so there was a period my sophomore year at Carleton College when I wasn't doing so well in science classes. And I sort of decided on my own to some extent that I needed to do better. Um, and after that, because I thought I wanted to be a practicing scientist, and after that, I, I did better. The one other thing that happened to me that was really good fortune was after I left Carleton, I was hired by uh, a small company called Molecular Genetics that was part of the emerging biotech boom. And I had great mentors there. So after that, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school. I went to MIT as a chemistry graduate student and postdoc in Cambridge, England, and then came here 28 years ago. I, I love to hear that. You know, I, I think sometimes, at least for someone such as myself, uh, you know, it, 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 we tend to think of, of research scientists of, uh, as being just on that path from the get-go. And so it's, it's interesting to hear that, uh, you know, there, there was a, a process of discovery and getting yourself there. That was certainly true for me, although, as I said, I've always, I guess if you had asked me when I was 10 years old, I would have said I was going to be a chemist, uh, which doesn't sound like a very exciting kid, but that's sort of how I always thought. Well, I love that. I love that. So, again, we do want to talk about a couple discoveries that have happened here at the University of Utah. But before we do that, I'd like to maybe lay a foundation for us to discuss this idea of, of having some kind of discovery and then moving towards a therapeutic. And it feels to me as if this is somewhat topical in the public conscious, at least because of COVID-19 and uh, the coming vaccines. However, even though we're witnessing that uh, somewhat real time, it, it is maybe a different story. And I wondered if you could maybe talk to us a little bit about what it, typically looks like to go from a a scientific discovery to the development of a therapeutic in in maybe a conventional process? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Again, actually, our externship today, we're having presentations from the vice presidents of Gilead Science 
who developed remdesivir and lots of the important HIV drugs, and Pfizer. Uh, my old college roommate actually happens to be the person who's in charge of distributing the Pfizer vaccine. And so um, oh, if we were listening to them, we'd get a, a more expert opinion uh, and on this issue. But I'd say um, it's it's quite idiosyncratic in the sense that it depends where the discovery along the translational pipeline happens to occur. Um, but it always takes a long time if it's a, a basic science discovery. And so that doesn't mean it's not important or it won't lead to real advances. I think some of the very most important advances come from uh, real changes in how we think about basic science. But the timeline is always uh, rem uh, surprisingly long, I think, for people who aren't used to thinking about going from a discovery to a therapeutic uh, treatment. But it, but it is quite idiosyncratic. So some things can be translated quite quickly. Most are not, especially if they're drugs. That That's that's fair. And I, and I think that's something that I wanted to illuminate is that it, it appears to me that quite often it can be a very, very long process where, where years and years uh, to end up with a therapeutic or intervention. That's absolutely right. Now, I think another thing that I'm curious about is once someone has started down a research path, maybe the process of discovery can be abstract to a lay person, or at least this notion of, of discovery. Uh, could you talk a little bit, maybe in general terms, about what it looks like to, you know, because I imagine as as a scientist, you you have your area of expertise, but what might guide someone down a path of of specific discovery? What what might be the the, the things that pull a person into a particular area of of that they're working on a discovery? Yeah. So in our own case, our, our lab works on HIV and. Um, we made a fairly conscious, I made a fairly conscious decision when we came here 28 years ago to start working on HIV. Uh, so that was 1992, and the death rates were still climbing pretty dramatically uh, in the U.S. We didn't have any uh, effective therapies. It was maybe four or five years ago before, years after that, before the first uh, effective therapies uh, came uh, into the clinic, into broader use. And so I'm not certain that we we decided to work in an area that we thought was understudied and fundamentally important. Uh, I'm not sure we knew in any uh, real way what discoveries we'd make and how they might be translated. But I think we did make conscious decisions to work on important problems and important health problems, and also in areas uh, where they were not as well studied by other labs uh, as some of the other, for example, enzymes where the first HIV inhibitors were uh, came from. I, I think that's very illuminating. I, I like how you put it that, you know, working on on problems that, that, that feel very important. Um, you know, sometimes it may seem to us in, in just as, as a layperson in the public that we get news about a discovery and, and it just feels like it's something that may be materialized in some lab. But I, I, I like that you point out that there is some sort of directive, even though you may not know where it's going to lead you, that there's some, some kind of directive as to what you're working on. I agree. I think good scientists think hard about whether they're working in fundamental areas, uh, whether there's new knowledge to be discovered, whether it's likely to be important whether it's likely to be translatable. 
even when they don't know indeed. I mean, the, the sort of uh, nature of discovery is that you don't know what you're going to find. But I think that doesn't mean that you are equally likely to find it if you're looking in one place versus another. I think people should think hard about why they're doing what they're doing and whether it's likely to lead to important new knowledge or translational medicine. That's fantastic, um, and, and and I and I like that as as a as a guiding principle. You know, I I think another thing that's that's worth talking about in in terms of uh, setting up this idea of of going from discovery to a therapeutic or an intervention is there there appear to be and, and, and maybe this isn't obvious to everybody, but there are points where there's maybe pass offs. Um, that it's not necessarily the same scientists that go from discovery to the end point of having a therapeutic. Could you talk a little bit about that, that, that it, the process may span across multiple scientists, multiple teams to go from that point of discovery to therapeutic? Yeah, that's really a good point and good question. And I think it's uh, nicely illustrated by our own experience. Um, so in the nineties and early two thousands, our group, together with collaborators, especially Chris Hill's group here at the University of Utah, were very interested in understanding how HIV makes its viral capsid. So this is the particle that can support replication, and without it, the virus can't um, can't infect new cells. And um, we learned, I think it's fair to say, we learned quite a bit about how the capsid assembles and what its architecture is, and also were able to show that it was really important for a number of steps in the viral life cycle. Uh, but we were then approached by Gilead Sciences, who asked us if we thought it would be a good drug target. And so we helped them to uh, set up screens uh, for small molecules that would inhibit capsid functions. Uh, but we didn't do any of the screening. We didn't do any of the medicinal chemistry, the pharmacokinetics, and so on and so forth. That was all done at Gilead and with skill sets that are really quite different from my own and those in our lab. And so I think one really wants to see things translated. And so, and I think it's also really true that uh, when people are the driving force behind projects. They tend to care more passionately about them than just handing them off. But I also think it's really important to realize that these are different skill sets. And I think a lot of drug development, maybe most drug development should be done in the private sector rather than in the academic uh, community. I, I, I like that you point out that it is different skill sets there that, uh, you know, like it, it's not just a simple catch-all with with one particular person or group uh, that's able to go from discovery to to a therapeutic uh, you know so you've you use your own experience as as a way to illustrate some of these principles I'd like to dive in a little bit more in talking about the research that you and your team have done uh, you make reference to the capsids uh, as, as part of HIV uh, as I understand it the Capsid is a cone-shaped shell that encapsulates the virus. Is that correct? Um, pretty close. The shape, okay. Is right. uh, <laughs> so it's a, it's a cone shape. Um, what it encapsulates is the viral RNA. Um, okay. So it's actually inside the viral particle. But then uh, it's sort of a Russian doll game. There's a membrane shell around the whole virus, and then inside that is the conical capsid. 
And inside that is the RNA genome and it's the enzymes that are needed to copy the genome. Okay. Now, what I'm curious about, and, and my understanding from having read a few stories about your research, uh, is is that you were just kind of drawn to the structure of the capsid. At least that's how I've seen it characterized in some stories. Could you talk about what drew you to diving into that area of research? Yeah, I think there is truth. I mean, everything makes sense in retrospect, and uh, when you're living through it, it's not as rational. Uh, but I think it's true, fair to say that we were always interested in understanding how a protein can make a cone. So if you think about a cone, and these are enclosed cones, they have wide ends, and they have narrow ends, and they taper. And what that means is that a protein subunit that's in the narrow end of the cone is in a different environment than one that's in the wide end of the cone. And if you think about uh, protein assemblies or any other kind of building assembly, for that matter, um, it's an interesting problem if you have to build an object that's regular, but is also in some sense um, changing all the time in its environment. And that's something that proteins can do, but it's more interesting than if they're building something that is strictly regular, like in a casahedron, for example. Okay. Now, there, as you dove into researching these capsids, there, there were some important discoveries that took place. Uh, now, my understanding is that you all were able to actually work on, uh, and I think this was featured in science, that you were able to make some critical discoveries as you monitored the virus as it replicated. Um, could you talk about what this allowed you to learn about HIV and the role of, of capsids within HIV? Yeah, so I guess you're talking about our most recent work. We just had a paper in October in science. Devin Christensen, who's a postdoc in our lab, and Jared Johnson, who's a, a faculty member associated with our lab, and then also uh, collaborators, uh, Barbie Ganser Pornillos and Owen Pornillos, who are at the University of Virginia, they're faculty members, but they're also former graduate students. So it's really fun that we've been able to keep working with them. And what uh, the team sort of led by Devon was able to do was to reconstitute the first half of the viral life cycle in a test tube, so outside the cell. And uh, that, for us, that felt like a, a an an exciting accomplishment. Uh, but what it allowed us to do is to show that the capsid, the shells surrounding the viral RNA, um, is actually an essential part, plays an essential role in the replication process. So it's not just a, um, a shell to protect the RNA. It's actually required for the replication process. It's a much more active player than we would have guessed. Um, and so um, that was possible to, to really definitively show because we could isolate variables because we were working outside the cell. Now, could, and I think that that's some very important research and showing, showing that, but could you also talk about, are there, are there other things about capsids through the time that you've worked on, on researching these capsids that, that you've found to be very important in terms of our understanding of HIV yeah, I guess we now understand that the entire first half of the life cycle, so that we divide, divide the life cycle into two halves, the first half and the second half. And in the first half, the virus is entering a new target cell, 
replicating its RNA into DNA and integrating that DNA into the host chromosome. And this integration event is the reason it's so hard to cure people of HIV because the virus leaves a copy of itself in our genome. And I think we now understand that essentially every step of that first half of the life cycle after the virus has entered the new cell, it relies on the capsid. And so it's really an architectural feature that holds everything together for the virus, but also helps it to catalyze the different steps it needs as it moves through the cytoplasm and into the nucleus and copies its genome. And so um, it's turned out to be, I think it's fair to say, a much more important assembly than we initially appreciated. As I mentioned throughout this episode, we're talking about these discoveries leading to therapeutics. And you've mentioned Gilead developing a therapeutic uh, in relation with this research that you and your team have done and, and others have, have worked on relating to capsids. Could you talk a, a little bit more in detail about what that drug uh, that Gilead has been working on does? Uh, and, and I believe they're, they've been in phase one clinical trials. Is, is that correct? Yes, that's right. So um, just this summer in nature, uh, we were part of it, but it's driven by Gilead, as I said, um, uh, published the results of the phase one clinical trials. Um, and what's exciting, without worrying too much about the details, um, the, what's exciting, the, the compound does in fact bind to the capsid. Uh, that's what it was designed to do. Um, but what's exciting is it's more potent than any of the drugs that are currently on the market. And more importantly, it's much more long lasting. So they could show that if they give people, these are non-infected volunteers, the drug in a single dose uh, under their skin, so-called subcutaneous uh, injection, that it would last at levels that will inhibit virus replication for half a year. And so, at least in principle, that means you could treat people for a much much less frequently than the current drug regimens. And that could have quite important implications for things like the development of drug resistance, which is often linked to non-compliance, and also delivery of medicine in the third world where uh, daily medicines are much harder to take than, for example, if they could be taken twice a year. So there's there's a couple items in in what you just noted that I I think illustrates something I find very interesting because it may not be evident to a layperson why continued research would happen with a disease uh, if there if there's already an existing therapeutic and it seems to me from what you've just illustrated that a here's here's the development of the therapeutic that lasts longer uh, it, and it may have implications towards the ability to implement it in other areas where it's less practical or or maybe where there's less infrastructure to do that um, does that seem fair as as one of the some of the reasons why continued research on a disease that, that already has existing therapeutics is important? Yeah, um, I think the answer is yes. That, uh, I think it really depends on the disease. So um, the scale of HIV, 38 million people are living with HIV AIDS worldwide. And so that means that any improvement uh, in a therapeutic can have pretty profound um, uh, implications for human health just because the scale of the pandemic is so large. 
And so there are still really important things to do in HIV. Uh, we don't know how to cure people who already have it. So we can treat them and suppress their virus, but we can't cure them of uh, the disease. So that's a major area in which people are working. We also can't vaccinate to prevent transmission. That's another important area. And perhaps it's going to end up being true that uh, drugs, preventative drugs, so-called PrEP, uh, prophylactic use of drugs is what's going to prevent transmission rather than a vaccine. But anyway, it's important to point out that um, on a scale of literally tens of millions of people worldwide, um, doing things like curing those people and preventing them from transmitting the virus is has really important uh, health benefits. Beautifully put. And I, and I appreciate that because I think it is important to to me, from my perspective, I think understanding the importance of continued research. Uh, so I'd like to pivot to a, an, another lab's work here at the University of Utah uh, and some of the work that they've done and just get get some of your thoughts uh, about some of this work. Um, from Dr. Michael Kay's lab, uh, they've worked on developing a, a therapeutic that, as I understand it, is entering phase one human trials. Um, and they take a, a different approach and I think to set this up, it might be worth getting your help defining a term in that this therapeutic focuses on D-peptides. Could you help explain what a, a D-peptide is? Yeah. So um, molecules uh, can have the property of what we call chirality. And what that means is that they're not superimposable on their mirror images. And so uh, your hand is an example of a chiral object. So if you take your hand and reflect it in the mirror, it won't um, superimpose on itself. It has what we call handedness. And that the same is true for molecules, and uh, including uh, amino acids, and uh, which are the building blocks of proteins. And they come in two different mirror images of one another called L and D. And so D peptides are molecules that are built out of D amino acids. So they're not, they're the mirror image of what we normally see in life. And that is really important because they have different shapes in three dimensions. And so they're not recognized by the same enzymes, for example, that would normally degrade uh, the naturally occurring L amino acids. Th thank you for, for helping uh, uh, define that as to what D-peptides do uh, or what they are. Uh, now, as my understanding, what the K-Lab has worked on is that they've utilized this with, with D-peptides that are kind of these mirror images to work on developing a therapeutic that jams the infection machinery of HIV. Um, as you understand it, is, is that how this therapeutic that the K-Lab has been working on works? Yes, it, it blocks the ability of the virus to enter a new cell. And it does that, as you said, by jamming the, uh, the machinery that the virus uses to enter a new cell. Could you talk a little bit about the implication of, of that? What, what does that mean therapeutically? For, yeah, so for... uh, one of the things we would really like to do, uh, there are drugs uh, against HIV, some of them, uh, block the early stages of infection. Some of them block later stages of infection, but prevent dissemination so that the virus doesn't spread. But in principle, it's better to block the first step. Uh, and that's exactly what these inhibitors do. 
which is which is really incredible looking into this research somewhat. And I, I, as I understand, they've had success with this uh, in doing some some primate experiments from uh, or, or trials. Yeah, they have a lovely um, paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that came out this year uh, together with a primate laboratory called Malcolm Martin uh, at NIH. And they show that these are really very effective at blocking the entry of, of a virus that's sort of a modified virus so that it can um, replicate in rhesus macaques, but it's essentially HIV. Uh, and it, it really works in that setting. So there's every reason to think it will work in higher primates like ourselves. That's, that's phenomenal news uh, to see that work coming to, to some kind of fruition. Maybe what's most exciting, you didn't ask me this, but um, the, the work that the K-Lab has done has created a platform for developing inhibitors of this type that will work in a lot of important medical situations. So other viruses uh, but even cases uh, of other kinds of protein-protein interactions that leave, lead to pathologies, which are most kinds of pathologies, um, this is a general platform for developing such inhibitors. So their HIV inhibitors are exciting for sure, uh, but maybe what's even more exciting is that they have now a really efficient way of doing this for um, most kinds of interactions that you would like to be able to inhibit so that's what we're most excited about for their program. And, and maybe maybe I'm misremembering, but did I see that that may have some kind of implications as well in, in some of the work on, on SARS-CoV-2? Yes, so they have an NIH grant and an active program uh, on uh, SARS-CoV-2 for exactly that reason, because it, it it's equally applicable. I mean, they have to start over in some sense because the inhibitors that work for HIV won't work for sars Cov two, but uh, but the but the platform is exactly the same and is now working very well. That that is, and I'm glad you brought that up because that is incredible to have that kind of uh, flexibility for for work in other areas as well. Yeah, it, uh, Michael deserves and his team deserve huge credit for sticking to this because it's. Um, we could all understand it in principle, but making it work in practice is never, not at all trivial. And they've really done an amazing job of that. Well, Dr. Sunquist, I appreciate you taking the time to join me today to talk a little bit about some of these areas. And, and truly, I, I want to acknowledge how much of a career's worth of work this is to see, see, see this kind of a timeline come to fruition in, in, in some manner where you're seeing the work that you've done in your research and, and the work of others uh, result in, in therapeutic interventions. Um, it truly is a, a labor that takes a long time to kind of see the fruits in some, in some respects. Yeah, I think that's true. Thanks, Kyle. And it, it is really a fun time. Um, I think there is a satisfaction in seeing things actually look like they will help people um, that you don't get just from the laboratory. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us for Pioneering the Future, Stories of Discovery and Innovation at University of Utah Health. To find out more about the discoveries discussed today and many more important discoveries at the University of Utah, please visit discovery.med.utah.edu. Special thanks to Wes Sunquist, the genesis of this endeavor, to Julie Kiefer and Abby Rooney for production and supervision, and to Michael Kay, Stefan Polst, 
and Wes Sundquist and their collaborators for their outstanding research that was featured in this episode and the accompanying Pioneering the Future article.